The Horse Race is brought to you by Benchmark Strategies. Benchmark is setting a new standard as Boston's fastest-growing public affairs consulting firm. To know more, connect with Benchmark on Twitter at Benchmark Boston. Today on The Horse Race, we take a gallop, we take a canter, we take a trot, even, around this great commonwealth to look at what happened in local elections of note. Then we widen that loop a bit and look at national results and how they square with Joe Biden's, frankly, dismal poll numbers. And finally, the big question, does Massachusetts love anything more than pictures of Ben Affleck? It's Thursday, November 9th. Welcome back to The Horse Race, your weekly look at politics, policy, and elections in Massachusetts. I'm Lisa Kaczynski. You haven't heard me up top here for a while because we have a full stable of co-hosts this week, and one of them, uh, and that person is not Steve Casella, it's Jennifer Smith, is making horse puns? Clearly a lot has changed in my absence, and I'm going to skip over everything else that was in the script to just talk about how we got Jen to make horse puns. I was forced. I was subjected. <laughs> they were in the script. She didn't have a choice. <laughs> I think I'm just down one too many coffees today. I'm just, I'm not my full self. And that means that that gap, that hole inside of me is filled by <laughs> horse puns if you put them there. <laughs> well, we are satisfying our promise for 39% more horse puns than we made when Lisa Kaczynski first joined our pod. So there you go. Incredible. Um, I would like to pivot away to different percentages, though, Steve, if you wouldn't terribly mind, because we're going to delve into a bunch of kind of local election stuff. Lisa is going to list out the absolutely ungodly number of mayoral races that we had last night. But uh, Steve, we don't just talk about Massachusetts, weirdly, here in Massachusetts. What about the national landscape was interesting to you? Well, there was a big horse race in Kentucky. F*** off. <laughs> but um. <laughs> It was not the Kentucky Derby. There was actually a gubernatorial election in Kentucky. And it was one of several interesting races that kind of painted a pretty interesting picture. So there's a couple states that have their statewide elections in off years and just before the presidential year, essentially, which gives us kind of an interesting preview, um, kind of an interim look at sort of how partisan politics are playing out nationally. So Kentucky was one of them. There was a gubernatorial election there. And Virginia was the other one, which had basically legislative elections. And then the third one was Ohio, where, of course, longtime listeners of the horse race who have committed all of our episodes to memory, we'll recall that there was a ballot question basically asking whether or not voters there, residents there, wanted to enshrine the right to abortion in the state constitution. So what did that actually kind of signal to you? We will and we have and we may have and we might again in the future because time has no meaning. We'll talk about basically how Massachusetts voters feel about a number of different topics. But what is this sort of signal to you about the way that folks across the country are feeling about maybe the big issues as opposed to the big candidates? 
Well, the most interesting kind of the top line takeaway was that Democrats and pro-abortion forces across the country had a great night all across the board, pretty much. Um, so in Ohio, which is a state that's voted red in national elections pretty consistently lately, they endorsed the ballot question that now will enshrine abortion access into the state constitution by uh, by a four, about a 14-point margin. You know, we don't have the final vote totals on all of these, but these are all, you know, unofficial results. Um, they also actually voted to legalize marijuana in Ohio. In Kentucky, they reelected the state's Democratic uh, governor that got elected back in 2019 in a very close election back then. His margin actually expanded this time. Um, so it was just a few thousand votes last time. Uh, this time it looks like it might be about a six-point margin for him. Um, and just an interesting side note that you can, you know, pull out of cocktail parties. <laughs> Kentucky has been predictive of the presidential election for each of the last five cycles. So, you know, not to say that that's always going to hold, but it has held uh, recently. So Democrats are must be feeling fairly good about what happened kind of across the board and everything you just ran down. But how does that square with the polling that we've seen recently um, about the president himself? Yeah, Lisa, that's a really interesting question because those were two of them, Kentucky and Ohio. Then, of course, Virginia, Democrats there held the state Senate, which was a question about the influence of their governor, uh, Glenn Youngkin, and whether his brand of politics was was popular. So, you know, Democrats are feeling good about 2023. 2024 is a different question. You know, there have been uh, some polls lately, most notably the New York Times and Siena poll, which showed potentially very troubling signs for 2024. I should say that that's only one of a bunch of polls that one had uh, basically Donald Trump winning in a series of key swing states that, you know, kind of set everybody on edge who's a Democratic supporter. You know, other polls show something slightly different, perhaps slightly tied, perhaps Joe Biden with a lead. But I think what we learned last night is that right now, you know, in the things that we were all being asked to decide that the voters in those states were being asked to decide, um, you know, People are still leaning towards Democrats. Abortion is still an extremely, extremely salient issue. Even in red states, you're getting, you know, 20 percent of Republicans and, you know, 60 or 70 percent of independents and 90 percent of Democrats voting in favor of, of abortion access. So, you know, we know pretty well um, what people think of the landscape in 2024 based on these polls, but we only know what they think of it right now. We know people think Joe Biden's old. We know people th that aren't supporting Trump think he's crazy. That's not news. Um, what they'll be thinking about by 2024, which ones of them will be on the ballot, what the issues will be by that point, no idea yet. So I'd say overall, the atmosphere is that, you know, people are more tilting toward Democrats right now nationally, but that doesn't really tell us what the election in 2024 is going to be like. So I don't know if this is the kind of question that you as a pollster like or don't like. Steve, but I'm going to go for it anyway. The thing that's been interesting to me when you look at the issues having like pretty strong stances and then softening numbers when it comes to Biden is does this make a case for polling essentially that looks at whether or not another candidate might be a better messenger? Because we do know, of course, that one of the things that is considered just completely gauche in these sorts of races, at least on the Democratic side, is like, don't run someone basically against the incumbent. Don't suggest that the incumbent shouldn't continue to be the choice from the party. But at what point or to what extent is it helpful to have polling looking at alternatives? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and, you know, you see a lot of polling that tries to look at, okay, what if it was an alternative? And, uh, you know, sometimes 
the generic or the specific alternative does better than than Joe Biden. Um, but you know, the limitation of those kinds of polls, I think, are that if it's a generic Democrat, you know, the joke among pollsters is something like, you know, generic Democrat, great on the issues, great stump speech, <laughs> matches all my demographics, you know, exactly the person that I want, great speaker, you know, but nobody is really all those things. You know, you can paint whatever picture you want on the blank canvas of a generic Democrat, um, but all of them are real people. They're all you know, Dean Phillips is the one running right now. He's got a background. He's got a profession. He's got, you know, he's had some very strange town halls, you know, so it's not just like you can put in any other Democrat and, and they'll do better. But, you know, there's no harm in it. Like, there's no harm in seeing and asking as a pollster, like, is this really what people are saying? You know, because you can read the tea leaves to say Democratic issues, Democratic candidates do well, but in polls, Joe Biden does badly. So therefore, ergo, like another Democrat would be better. Um, but then you have to figure out who that other Democrat is. And, um, you know, they all bring their own issues. You know, Andy Bashir, of course, from Kentucky, he's one that right away last night, people were like, why don't we run him? But um, a presidential campaign is just a whole other deal. So I don't know. I don't know what it, what's going to happen in 2024. But I think both the polls that we've seen and the results we've seen are both worth considering when we try to look forward to 2024. Okay, so that's a lot of national stuff. Let's bring it back to Massachusetts. Why are we here? We have yet to answer that question. We're going to give it another go existentially. No idea. We're Not here to answer the big questions. That's what we're here for, except for this one. We can answer all the other questions. That's true. We can answer all the other questions. We are going to ask ourselves why things turned out the way that they did over the course of the election that happened last night or two nights ago. Time is an illusion, but let's move forward through it, shall we? Giddy up. So there were elections up the ballot, there were elections down the ballot, and we're going to start somewhere near the bottom of the ballot and talk about local elections with who else to talk about them but Lisa Kaczynski. So Lisa, welcome back to the horse race. Thank you so much for joining us. It's such a pleasure to be back here from the Granite State. I really just cannot stress that enough. So we've talked a bit about what happened around the country, but there were also some very interesting results here in Massachusetts. Some of them featured something we just don't see a lot of here in Massachusetts, and that is competition. Lisa, there was competition last night. That's exciting in Massachusetts. Tell us what's going on. It's so different when we get to talk about competitive races in this state. Um, and even to be clear, a competitive legislative race, which I think might be one of the rarest of them all. But let's talk about the mayors. So there were 35 mayoral seats up for election um, this week. And a lot of them, I'm not going to pretend that I have that number memorized, but a lot of them were contested to the point where we actually saw four incumbents lose, which is especially in a mayor's race, like, you know, Folks can get unseated, but to have four folks lose in a night in different communities over things as kind of varying as housing, um, you know, housing development, issues with schools. I mean, that's a lot. And watching kind of watching this play out last night as results came in was really interesting because we'd had hints from preliminary elections in Woburn and Fitchburg that those incumbents might be in trouble. But we hadn't really had data on Braintree and Greenfield yet about how those races might go because there weren't preliminary elections. And so those are the four cities where incumbent mayors, and in some cases who had served multiple terms, 
are going to be out of a job. Yeah, one thing that was really striking to me, because I am part of the uh, grand team of reporters who had to go through all of these results in the middle of the night and then again in the morning and go, oh, my gosh, these are a lot of races to run through. What the heck distinguished the folks who won from the folks who lost? And one of the first things that kind of jumped out to me was that's actually a harder thing to pin down than you might expect. For instance, it's not just longtime incumbents, because if you look at Woburn, um, the city council president, Mike Concanon, ousted a 14-year incumbent, Scott Galvin. So it's not just, oh, they really like people like Tom Koch in Quincy, and they say we're going to basically keep them as long as they want to be there. There's also kind of some disruptive feeling that can come up as in Woburn when there was, for instance, a big dust up over teachers and strikes. So for instance, the actual winner in that race was backed by the teachers union. So that was one dynamic in that race. And then you ended up, as you alluded to, Lisa, with development really being a big dynamic in Braintree. We've been talking a lot about the tensions that have been coming up around, do we build? Where do we build? Can we build? Do we even want people here in Braintree? And so that was a very interesting sort of dynamic there that ended with the former chair of the Braintree planning board, ousting an incumbent who had been in there for several years. So you do have these kind of mix of things. I'm going to ask you a question that is going to be maybe inconvenient, which is what's your take on the fact that, you know, Healy's endorsed uh, choices were half of the folks who lost here, you know? So Healy had endorsed in the Fitchburg City Council race and also endorsed in Greenfield. And both of the incumbents that she endorsed did end up losing. So how do you kind of frame that with the fact that she also endorsed a lot of incumbents who did end up winning? Yeah, this is kind of an interesting track record. And Like, to be clear, having the endorsement of the governor and the lieutenant governor because they did endorse as a team, that only goes so far in a local race that's super rooted in issues, like we just said, and just kind of the political dynamics that are playing out in those cities. But it's not great that she starts off with a couple of L's. Um, And also in the state Senate special election, um, she had endorsed the Democrat, uh, the LG Driscoll had actually gone out and campaigned for him over this past weekend. And, um, you know, he lost as well in a race that wouldn't have even happened if it wasn't because of the governor polling that sitting state senator at the time, Ann Gobi, in as her rural affairs director. So... Healy and Driscoll weren't on the ballot. In the end, this won't really matter too much, but it's kind of like an interesting note or an asterisk to kind of start as their first kind of batch of tests of their clout as the state's top two Democrats, elected officials on Beacon Hill, etc. We certainly talked about that many times during the Baker administration that, you know, he couldn't seem to translate his massive popularity into really anything down ballot, Republicans or really even any of the moderate Democrats that he endorsed. Not that they never won, but it didn't seem to be like this is your golden ticket if you can just get Baker to come out for you. So um, interesting continuation there for Healy. Looking then around at a couple other trends, we thought Springfield and Worcester were going to be interesting. Turned out they weren't that interesting. You know, incumbents win big margins. One very unusual dynamic is we actually had two candidates trying to be mayor again, which isn't something you get to say every day. What happened in those two races? 
Yeah, so that was playing out in Revere and Fall River. Um, In Revere, Dan Rizzo, one-term mayor, current city councilor, has tried to get his job back a few times now. Um, He lost again to acting Mayor Patrick Keefe, who was backed by um, kind of supporters of or allies of Brian Arrigo, the Revere mayor who left to go head DCR and who knocked Rizzo out in the first place eight years ago. So just kind of a continuation of that dynamic um, for Dan Rizzo in Revere. And then in Fall River, uh, Sam Sutter, who was um, a former mayor there, tried to get his job back against the sitting mayor, Paul Coogan, who I guess we should note was endorsed by both the Healy Driscoll side and the Baker Polito side in one of those fun, um, you know, nonpartisan race draws big polls from both sides moments. Um, but yeah, Sam Sutter lost too uh, by a pretty decent margin. It was closer and it was a much closer in Revere, um, which is unsurprising given that city's politics. All right, we've done our due diligence. We have acknowledged that places exist outside of here, our capital city. But Lisa, there was actually like a bunch of exciting, weird news essentially here in the Boston races, namely that Mayor Michelle Wu had like a super great night in terms of her endorsements. But why don't you break it down a bit more? Yeah, I mean, the biggest winner on Tuesday was the person who wasn't on the ballot, Um, you know, with, with Michelle Wu there. I mean, she backed strategically for candidates who this year were all newcomers. At this point, Sharon Durkin was defending the seat she'd won in a special election, um, you know, in, in District 8 over the summer. But essentially four newcomers, three of which had worked for her before in various capacities, all of which identify as progressives, all of which now have seats on the city council. Um, So super big night for the mayor. Um, She was thrilled. I mean, could hardly keep a smile off her face when I ran into her at Henry Santana's party. This is this is kind of like a big statement for her, um, you know, heading into what's likely, I guess we still have to keep hedging it likely a reelection bid in 2025. Um, so yeah, good night for her. Good night for progressives kind of writ large. They have effectively picked up a seat on the council, even though, of course, there's that ongoing argument of whether some of these progressives who were elected are as progressive or as far left as some of the councillors who are no longer going to be on the council who were booted in the preliminary election, which is part of that larger interdynamic among the far and farther left uh, in Boston right now. I do want to note something that's been interesting for me to see since the results started coming in on the Boston side, which is, you know, a decent amount of of frustration from those on the left in Boston saying that this wasn't actually uh, a fair framing of it as progressives versus moderates. They said it was kind of a question of institutional support because, of course, you have the sitting mayor and mayors tend to have like pretty good machines rolling through these city elections. But one thing that we've talked about before is is, you know, there was no lack of what we would also call institutional support on the other side. You had the former mayor, who is still a present figure, weighing in on some of these races. You had police unions weighing in. So so it really was actually, I think, an interesting look at what the sort of institutional battle dynamics might be in Boston right now. And the way that we might end up seeing that shake out on the council, too, uh, is still a bit of an open question because you did, for instance, lose Michael Flaherty and pick up um, Santana, which is going to change 
change the overall dynamics of the city council, but you're also still going to get some more of those moderate presences with, for instance, Frank Baker in District 3 being replaced with John Fitzgerald, who is kind of of that same lineage. So you're still going to have that presence of what you might call the Marty Walsh era, even in a Michelle Wu-dominated city council. So that's our Zoom into Boston. And now we're going to Zoom out to Western Massachusetts, Zoom over perhaps. Um, That's going to be our next segment. But before we hop to that, Lisa, I have to ask you, what was your view on the state Senate special election that took place in central Massachusetts? You cover the Mass GOP all the time. So what did it mean to you? What did it mean to them? What it means to me is that I might have a party to cover again. Uh, What it means to them is that they might have a party that's back from the dead. So kind of, I guess, the same thing. Um, I know that you guys are going to dive into all the details without me, and it breaks my my heart. But look, the dynamics here are, are Republicans gaining anything electorally out of this? Not really. They're not getting any more power on Beacon Hill. What this was, was a huge boost to party morale that has been sinking like further and further and further underground for years at this point with losses with the debt with the weight of just everything that has gone wrong for this party and this was a sign that as the chair put it to me amy carnavale that with the right candidate and the ability to support them and actually work as a team which is not something the gop has been able to do for a few years they can actually win There were a lot of factors at play here. I can't wait for you guys to get into all of them. But, you know, at least from a morale standpoint, a pretty good night for the Mass GOP. All right. Well, you know, our mayoral correspondent, but more importantly, Mass GOP correspondent, uh, will keep you in our hearts in the next segment. Lisa, we're going to have you back on in literally just a few minutes because we're going to be talking about Ben Affleck with a Starbucks coffee cup. So sit tight. What the f*** happened with that? So that was a lot of elections, and one of them, one of them, was a special state Senate election. And here to discuss it is our very special BFF of the pod, Katie Lannon, here in the bunker with us. Katie, uh, how are you doing in the chaos? Did you get sleep? I did sleep. I did manage to squeeze in some sleep in between my drive to and from Rutland, Massachusetts last night, the geographic center of the Commonwealth, and appearing here in person with my horse race pals. Do you know why you're here? I'm vaguely certain it has something to do with the podcast. But like existentially, that, why is she here? Or yeah, like? yeah, yeah. Subject matter, I think. I think. And I don't know. We do have the power to ask these questions, but I'm just <laughs> guessing at this. Was there an interesting, perhaps, changeover in a certain Senate seat? Wow, I think uh, I think I can follow this train of thought. There was uh, last night in central Massachusetts, the Senate seat that has long been held by Democrats for more than 50 years, most recently held by Ann Gobi, now a member of the Healy administration, changed parties. It's flipped red with Peter Durant's victory over uh, John Zlotnick. Durant, like Zlotnick, is a, a current state representative, and it's been a very closely watched race because of the kind of purple competitive nature of that district. And what were the issues that came up in this race? Do we have any idea sort of what issues this election turned on, or was it about something beyond just the issues? Um, all of the above, I think. Uh, it's, you know, in the in the absence of the kind of exit polling that you see in uh, national races, it is a bit of speculation. But we do know that Peter Durant, the, the winner, 
made a couple issues really central to his campaign. One of them was his opposition to the uh, gun reform legislation the Massachusetts House recently passed. Gun law reform, I should say. It doesn't actually reform guns themselves. Um, But that was something both candidates in that race had opposed. Durant had been a lot more vocal about it. And he's also been really outspoken as a critic of how the Healy administration has been responding to the shelter capacity crisis amid an influx of migrants to Massachusetts. He's called for changes to the right to shelter law here. And a lot of people did see, uh, you know, this race as kind of a referendum on those two issues. We saw the the Democrats trying to drive uh, voters out to the polls by pointing out that Zlotnick had supported abortion access measures while Durant had opposed them in the House. Uh, And another thing that Republicans have been kind of pointing to is the idea that this is a, a call for balance on Beacon Hill now. It doesn't add much balance. It'll bring the Senate's uh, minority caucus, the Republican caucus, to uh, four from three. And that's four out of 40. So it'll give them one tenth of the body. Doesn't really make a a noticeable dent in the Democrat supermajority control there. But I think that's a a narrative we're going to see Republicans seize on and run with as we head into 2024. There's always another election around the corner. Yeah. And the uh, results themselves were, you know, pretty close on the scale of things. It was about, you know, a 2000 vote margin out of, I think, like 22,000 votes cast or so. Uh, Was there anything about the race that was surprising? Because uh, even we here on this podcast, we here at Commonwealth, now Commonwealth Beacon, have been looking at this as a potential swing district for quite some time. So was this kind of a margin that was interesting to you? Was the reaction or the response from either Durant or Zlotnick interesting to you afterward? Yeah, I mean, I think, and I I will just want to say that Commonwealth Beacon has had some great uh, coverage of this race and the dynamics of this district. And I think you really saw it kind of shake out in an unsurprising way. It was, you know, the city's Gardner and the parts of Worcester that are in there broke for Zlotnick. You saw a lot of the the more rural, smaller towns going for Durant. And it was just a lot of people I talked to going in and even last night, Tuesday night, as um, results were rolling in, were expecting it to be more of a nail biter than it was. You know, I think people didn't know. I talked to one person who said, you know, if it broke big one way, it was going to be for the Republicans. And if it was close, maybe that's where the Democrats would take it. Hmm. So there are now... For Republican state senators, they can still have a caucus meeting inside a Honda Civic. Um, but is that our bar? <laughs> is it that was the a scale? Honda Fit for a while. So <laughs> I mean, it up was like you know, in the back of a motorcycle almost. Um, but no, seriously, I mean, the party has to be somewhat jazzed about this, just because it's been a while since they've had anything to celebrate. So what are we hearing from the mass GOP itself? Absolutely, I think a lot of people uh, involved with the party have been saying. Uh, almost using the same words, that this is unified party, at least behind this candidate. Um, We did see, you know, we've come off a lot of infighting within the party, uh, a leadership change over there. And we saw, of course, the 2022 elections left Republicans shut out of statewide office in Massachusetts. They lost ground in the House while they maintained, again, that three-seat caucus in the Senate. So what you're hearing from Republicans is that they were all pulling in the same direction this time around. There was a primary, but after that, everyone lined up, including the primary opponent, Bruce Chester. They really lined up behind Durant. There were representatives from the RNC 
uh, at Durant's election night party for National Republicans. So they put a lot of focus into into driving voters out in this race and presenting a, a unified front. We'll, we'll see how that continues if they're able to keep that run going. And what does that mean for the Democrats here? You know, if you're thinking about the loss of one seat, A, no party likes losing any seats whatsoever, but is this signaling anything about kind of the approach? Is it saying moderate? Are they saying, um, oh, no, the things that we thought were clear winners uh, like abortion and gun control uh, might be a little bit more swingy than we thought they were? Or are they basically saying, you know, this was as purple as a purple district gets in Massachusetts. If we were going to lose one, it was going to be this one. Yeah, I think that it's more of that that second option. You're not really seeing calls to moderate in part because Lotnick is a self-described moderate. He he ran as someone who can reach across the aisle, as someone who knows the contours of this district. It, it's worth noting out that most of this district uh, voted for Jeff Deal over Maura Healy last cycle. A lot of it voted for Trump in 2020. So these are Republican voting towns that have had a Democratic state senator for a while and I, I don't think we're going to see the Democrats reading too much into it. Of course, any loss is one that a political party is smart to analyze, but remains to be seen, I guess, how, uh, how if at all, there's going to be a shift after this. So, of course, this was the only uh, state legislative election, but there were just a ton, a mass of uh, local elections also. What trends did you take away from who won? What kinds of candidates? What things were they saying? Um, kind of what was, the, what was the thing you took away from the local elections we saw? I was interested to see how many incumbents were unseated last night. You don't see a lot of that in local races, particularly in you know these off-year municipal elections that don't have a a major turnout. We see, obviously, in Massachusetts, uh, the incumbency advantage is strong. So it was surprising to see so many cities uh, opt for for new leadership, specifically when their current mayor was on the ballot. Um, There was also, I think, a a lot of interest behind school committee races this cycle, which I, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that it's only cities that had their local elections this fall. And of course, we'll be watching the spring town elections to see what kind of uh, big picture trends can be drawn from school committee races, because there'll be a lot more of those uh, next spring. Well, you know, and you're the state house reporter for GBH, of course. And so that means that you're probably looking at this from a what is Beacon Hill doing on this perspective? Like, where was Healy in these races that that was interesting to you, like in terms of the way she was trying to either flex her kind of endorsement power or staying out of it? Did anything strike you? Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're still going to see how Healy's political muscle flexing uh, plays out longer term. She did, she and Kim Driscoll did endorse John Zlotnick in the Senate race and former Governor Baker, former Lieutenant Governor Polito endorsed Peter Durant. So as much as some people wanted to consider that as a proxy fight between Baker and Healy that we never got to see at the ballot, you know, I think Baker's track record with endorsements was kind of mixed. And there's only, I think, so much a, a governor can sway an election that really hinges on local issues, that hinges on local relationships. You know, one thing that someone pointed out to me last night was Sheriff Lou Evangelitis of Worcester County said that, 
he saw as Durant's win as kind of a, a message being sent to Beacon Hill that, you know, we don't want to talk about necessarily the things people in Boston want to talk about all the time. This is uh, central mass is its own distinct region. So I think there's only so much you can read into uh, a governor from the state house from the, the Boston area weighing in on local races. All right. Well, Katie Lannon, BFF of the pod officially and GBH reporter. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm going to go nap now. And that brings us to our final segment, which this week comes to us from our mass-produced coffee bureau here at Horse Race Global Media Empire Headquarters. There was a picture on Twitter. It was a Ben Affleck holding not a Dunkin' Donuts coffee, but Starbucks. Of course, this created an instant statewide scandal. I'm told that the auditor is looking into it. There's going to be an investigation. (laughs) Um, No, seriously, it was another sad Ben Affleck with coffee picture. So what was the emotion? What was the vibe? My primary emotion was simply hoping that he was not drinking the French roast. Nobody, <laughs> even sad Ben Affleck, Maybe should that's be why subjected. he was sad. That might be it. That might be it. He so, ordered a pike and they got the French roast. That's definitely it. My primary emotion was concern. Lisa, local mass hole, how did you feel? Betrayed. Just betrayed. <laughs> that's the only word I have for it. Just betrayal. I mean, you star in a Dunkin' Donuts ad. You star in several Dunkin' Donuts ads. You walk around with a Starbucks cup where you can see the label. Like, at least turn the cup, you know? Like, we we all drink Starbucks here. I drink Starbucks. You've seen me drink Starbucks. Just just turn just turn the, the label. Just turn it. Like, we still know it's a Starbucks cup. But just, just make us feel a little bit better. Just a little. Just a little. Yeah, that's sad. Sad Ben Affleck. Sad for all of us. But sad for all of you. That is all the time we have for today. I'm Steve Cazella signing off with Jennifer Smith and Lisa Kaczynski. Our producer, as always, is the great John Gee. You can write to us if you'd ever like to at thehorseracepodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to give The Horse Race a review wherever you're hearing us now. Subscribe to the Massachusetts Political Playbook and Commonwealth Beacons daily download. And reach out to the Massing Polling Group if you need polls or focus groups done. For now, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.